Welcome to Telling the Tooth, the official mental dental podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gross, and I'm joined today by my co-host, Dr. Laura J. Cox. Good morning, everybody. Good morning. So before we uh, jump into this interview, I just want to say, speaking from personal experience with insane amounts of debt, this is a tough topic, talking about dental school debt. And debt is one of those things that I just had to kind of put out of my mind during dental school because there's plenty to stress about. And I honestly didn't need one more thing on my plate. So it wasn't until after I graduated that I even had the mental capacity to face this issue head on. So keep that in mind. And wherever you're at in your own journey, we want this interview to be informative, but we also want it to be a blessing for those of you who just want to learn more about this topic. With debt, you have to prioritize self-care, be kind to yourself, and try not to get overwhelmed. You will get through this. My favorite Mark Twain quote is, worrying is like paying a debt that you don't owe. So with that, enjoy the interview. We are joined today by a fantastic guest, Dr. Hubble Smith. Hubble is from Gallipolis, a small town in southeastern Ohio. He attended Miami University in Ohio for undergrad and UNC for dental school. He recently completed an AEGD at the University of Cincinnati Medical Center and will soon be joining a private practice in Cincinnati. Hubble, thank you so much for spending your time with us today. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Ryan and Laura. I'm happy to be here. And the thing I did want to just mention before we get started, as a disclosure, I am a dentist. So that's where my perspective is coming from. I'm not a financial advisor, a CPA, or a lawyer. So anything that might sound like advice is not. It's just for your education and, and entertainment. Since you are coming to it from a dental background, what inspired your interest in this topic? I don't know. That probably goes back pretty far. I think a lot of us, um, whether consciously or unconsciously, um, take on a lot of our thoughts around money and finances from how we grew up. And I grew up kind of being around business and always enjoyed numbers. So I had always an interest in numbers and finances. And in college, I started studying econ quite a bit more and and that's probably where things really picked up as far as the personal finance side i just started reading books in my free time and really enjoyed it and then in dental school um, i saw that debt number climbing a little quicker than than i felt comfortable with initially Um, and i like to feel in control of things and at least researching and figuring out where things are what they should be gave me a little bit of that sense of control and and understanding uh, my situation and and how best to best to figure that out. For those who may be unaware, maybe we can start with what is the average dental school debt for graduates today? So Adia's data from 2019 stated that the average dental school debt is a hair over $292,000. yeah, so it's, so it's pretty significant. And the other thing to note with that is the Department of Education actually did release some data. And Travis Hornsby, who is fantastic as far as what he does for, for student loans, but he blogs over at the Student Loan Planner, um, had written some articles and, and mined through that data 
and noted that the median debt was actually higher than the average debt for, for all, nearly all dental schools. Um, and what that means is that, that a lot of students are having help, whether it be from a spouse or from family. And, and I think going through dentistry, we, we probably had, or through dental school, we probably had an idea of that, um, but to see it quantitatively, it, it was interesting. So even though that is the average, if someone's gonna finance their entire dental school education, um, I would expect um, things to be higher, again, going to an average school. There are some schools in some situations where, where you can get a little bit lower than that number, but, but just I, I do want people to have an expectation of what they're going into. Hmm. That's really interesting. And especially at private dental schools, like where I went, um, I had gone to Harvard for, for dental school prior to coming to UNC. And, you know, I had classmates that were walking out with 400, 500 plus grand worth of debt when their family was unable to help them with paying for it. And there wasn't really need-based help at the professional school level, at the dental school and so, you know, you could, you could really come out with some substantial debt, um, especially after residency. And there are some schools that uh, kids come out and, and you're looking at 600 plus thousand dollars today. And then if you tack on a specialty after that, then, then you run into a situation like the Wall Street Journal reported about back in 2018 with Mike Maru, who was an orthodontist who had over a million dollars in student loan debt. Yeah. Yeah, I knew a periodontist, a perio resident who was finishing up when I was a you know final year dental student, and he had over a million dollars. And and granted, you know he had it was his second residency program, so he was not the norm. But it's just kind of mind boggling when people just keep tacking on from college to dental school to residency. Wow, and I certainly hope for our listeners, no one's facing quite that amount of student debt. But if they are or feeling overwhelmed. Speaking from personal experience, Hubble, you've been an incredible help to me. So I'm excited for our listeners to hear what you have to share. No, I'm glad I was able to help in any way that I can, Ryan. And, and hopefully I can relieve some of that stress that, that I experienced kind of the first two years of dental school or so where I kind of really started digging into this. Mm-hmm, definitely. Uh, just so our listeners get a sense, what what is the average debt burden you know, today compared to 10 years ago or 20 years ago? So a lot of the graphs or the earliest data that I could find, again, from Adia, um, going back to 1996, um, the average dental school debt there was $84,000. And granted, that was in 1996 dollars. So we do have to adjust for inflation mm-hmm. um, to bring it back up to 2019 dollars so that we're comparing apples to apples. But whenever we do that, um, the average dental school debt in 2019 dollars for someone who graduated in 1996 is a little over 137,000. Okay, so that's 137,000 dollars versus nearly 300,000 dollars. So you're looking at nearly two and a half times of an increase over over less than 25 years, which is huge. I mean, it's, that impacts everything. Yeah, it does. So let's start talking about uh, some of the specific terminology that's used, because I know when I first got into dental school, this was a completely different language for me, and a lot of this was unfamiliar. So what are, for our listeners out there, what are direct loans all about? 
So if one's going to dental school, direct loans are where you're going to borrow your money from the federal government. Um, in undergrad, you have different types of loans that you might get, like Perkins loans are one example. But for dental school, you're going to be looking at two type of direct loans. Um, you're going to be looking at direct unsubsidized loans and direct plus loans. Uh, again, kind of comparing dental school to undergrad. Undergrad, one might have gotten some subsidized loans, but those don't exist for us going to dental school. So again, uh, a direct subsidized loan, the government's going to pay your interest as it accrues while you're in school. And then whenever you get done, you're going to be responsible for that interest, but, but it can be a pretty significant help. Uh, the problem is in dental school, we don't have that interest subsidy while you're going through school. So that interest that you take out from the first year for your student loans, that's going to accrue over your four years that you're in dental school. So that can, that can raise your student loan burden a little higher than one might expect. Again, just looking from the cost of attendance numbers that schools may publish or looking at um, those average values for the previous classes. The other thing that's kind of hard going back to looking at those average values is someone that's applying to dental school for this coming year, it would have been the class of 2024. Um, and the data that was available to them was the class of 2018. So the class of 2019 that I gave earlier, that data didn't get released until November. So people had already basically gotten through their application cycle. So you're on a six year delay. And we, and we talked about how much dental school has increased over less than 25 years. Six years can be pretty significant as far as estimating that. So, so I just would recommend that people run the numbers and use some reasonable assumptions for what interest might, might run them. Are those interest rates um, fixed or variable? And do you have any mechanism for kind of refinancing during dental school if interest rates drop? So those interest rates are, they're fixed for that year, but they do vary year to year. Um, and it's gonna be based on, on where um, the government is loaning money at that time. So, so we're in the midst of the pandemic right now when we're recording this and interest rates are historically low. And that's presented itself with the interest rates that, that students will be borrowing at for the upcoming 2021 20, uh, academic year, um, where they are, they are historically low. So again, that's fixed for this year, but in 2021, when students go to reapply for their new year of loans, it will depend on whatever interest is running at that time. As far as but refinancing in the middle of school um, to a lower interest rate and trying to fix it down there, I do not, again, I, it's not advice and not a guarantee, but I know of no way um, personally of doing that. So could you tell us a little bit about the difference between principal and interest? Interest is just the cost that, that an institution charges you to use their money. So you're not using your own money to, to go to dental school if you're taking out student loan debt. So interest is that money that accrues on top of the principal. Principal is the actual amount that you take out. So again, let's say that over the four years, I'm a fairly typical student and I took out $300,000 to pay for my tuition 
and my living expenses and all the other costs associated with dental school. Um, that is gonna be my principal. Again, we talked about how interest does accrue over the time that you're in dental school. So let's say the cost to borrow that money by the time I get done with everything, even though I only borrowed $300,000 worth, my ending loan balance um, whenever I get out of dental school is $340,000. Again, I'm just using, using arbitrary numbers here just to make a point, but that $40,000 on top of that three hundred dollars would be the interest that was charged. Again, that's just the cost of doing business or the cost of using um, the taxpayer's money if you're using federal loans. I'll talk a little bit about the grace period because that's another one of those terms that I heard and I wasn't sure what it meant exactly. So maybe we could talk about what a grace period is for loans and how exactly that works. So a grace period is an extra amount of time that, that you're given to begin making payments on your loans. Um, after you graduate, the grace period is going to be six months in, in a typical situation to begin making payments on your loan. So say you graduate in May, you're gonna have a six month grace period until November to begin making payments. Um, there are some benefits and some techniques and, and that does get into, um, does go down into the weeds a little bit. Um, but if anyone's interested, kind of looking at, um, especially our medical colleagues, whenever they go off to residency, a lot of them will consolidate their loans in use their income for the past year. And as a student, you're not making any income typically or very, very low income. And then whenever our medical colleagues become residents, they can potentially have $0 payments that are counting towards their loans. And if they're going for public service loan forgiveness or they're under a program called Repay, which we can talk about a little bit later, which offers an interest subsidy, it, there can be some fairly significant benefits that way. Again, it's, it's a typical technique that's used in the medical world. In the dental world, it's not as, as easy to use, especially if you're going to a grad program or a specialty such as ortho or pros or perio. Um, one of these programs that will typically charge tuition um, and the, the income that you make may not necessarily be employment income. And, and that's not a technique that can be as readily used for the dental world. And does interest accrue during that grace period as well? Interest continues to accrue, yep. And whenever you begin repaying that loan and um, it comes out of the grace period or comes out of deferment, that is going to, that interest will capitalize. Um, and, and that just means that the interest that grew over the time while you were in school gets added to the principal of the loan. So the principal of the loan does get larger. Um, and, and people may have heard about simple versus compound interest. In most cases, a student loan is going to actually act like simple interest, even though it might not seem that way based on how you're paying it off. You'll pay off more interest at the beginning and less at the end of the loan. Um, but whenever capitalization does occur, that, that's kind of almost a compound interest thought you can think of it that way because the interest gets added to the principal so now interest is growing on an even larger even larger balance for your own planning purposes how many years do most people take to pay off a loan that's on that order of magnitude of three to four hundred thousand dollars or how long should you expect to be paying it off oh man that that is a 
loaded question and really, really variable. Again, I think it comes down to the situation. It also comes down to, uh, I talked about earlier, kind of what interested, what made me interested in finance. And, and there's a pretty large psychological component to, to thinking about money and thinking about finance. And, and your aversion to debt, your aversion to risk uh, may make you unable to sleep at night carrying a larger balance whereas your classmate may be perfectly fine with that um, and, and may be having a different plan for how they want to manage their debt. As a dentist, it's still a pretty entrepreneurial field. And whenever we are thinking about buying a practice and, and we're starting a family and looking to buy a home, these are all typically things that, that require, require a decent amount of debt too. So all of that needs to be taken in a larger picture um, and looked at and not, it's not just isolating the student loans. But going back to your question, there, there are some people that do very, very well in practice, Laura, and can pay off their debt very quickly, especially if it's a, if it's a slightly lower than average amount. Um, and if you put everything in the kitchen sink at your debt, it, it might take five years to pay that off. Some people can probably pay it off in less and, and that's gonna require someone working very, very hard and, and also living a very, very Spartan lifestyle. Um, there are other people and, and there are um, different things that we'll discuss a little bit later as far as repayment plans and, and planning for the quote unquote tax bomb after a 20 to 25 year period. So, so there are people who are planning to pay this off in, in 20 plus years. And that I guess would be a combination of school loans, practice loan, all of that would would that ultimately get bundled under a refinancing at some point? School loans and practice loans are, are going to be treated separately in most cases. So, so they're not going to be bundled all together and refinance, but I would recommend that, that people think of their debt situation as a whole. Um, whenever, whenever accountants um, look at companies, they, they look at assets equals liabilities plus owner's equity um, for for a personal finance world, it's similar. It's assets equals liabilities or debt um, and someone's net worth. So liabilities or everyone's debts altogether should be, should be thought of globally and comprehensively. You don't want to just focus on your student loans and, and miss out on the bigger picture. And maybe you don't get into private practice ownership if that is a goal or if there is a certain situation that presents itself that is very, very good because you've put all of your liquidity, all of your capital, all of your money towards student loans, or you're unable to live the lifestyle that you want to um, because um, you're concentrating on, on one piece of the pie. Uh -huh. That makes a lot of sense, yeah. Have you seen um, in the literature you've reviewed how these debt burdens are influencing people's choices to pursue practice ownership or home ownership, um, other things that make a lot of financial sense, but would also add large debt burdens onto people? Yeah. Um, in, in the literature, I haven't seen that as much. I would like to a little bit, but going back, I mentioned Travis Hornsby at the Student Loan Planner earlier. Um, again, he works with a lot of people who have very, very large student loan burdens coming from all sorts of professions, but occasionally he'll send out surveys um, and, and it will relate 
mental health to student loans and family planning to student loans. And, and some of his stuff is interesting, but it's also important to understand that he does deal with, with a population that likely, or not likely, but may have a larger loan burden than, um, than the average person. So that's something to state, but I think you can get some insight from his, from his surveys. And although it's not literature, um, people are, are sometimes choosing to have kids later or, or not at all. People are making big life decisions based on how much debt they have and specifically how much um, their student loan burden is. Now, Laura brought up uh, refinancing. Can we talk a little bit about the difference between consolidation and refinancing? And because that is a strategy that most everybody with this amount of debt considers. And is there a preference towards consolidation or refinancing one over the other? Earlier, I mentioned a way, um, again, that, that medical colleagues may um, start paying their loans, but in actuality, they're not paying anything each month for a year. Um, and the way that they do that, you're, you're not able to make payments um, that are going towards that until your six-month grace period. But if you consolidate, that grace period goes away. And all consolidation is, is you maintain your loans within the, within the federal government servicers. You're not going to a private company. However, that loan that you took out year one in dental school is a separate loan than the one you took out year two in dental school and so on and so forth. Consolidation just wraps all those loans together. Um, those multiple loans, you can put any loans that you may have had an undergrad with that. Health profession student loans, if, if anyone had any of those, can be consolidated into a single loan to make things a little bit easier. So, so there is a little bit of simplicity there. Um, the other thing with that, though, to note is that the interest rate is weighted. It is weighted and rounded up to the nearest eighth of a percentage point. So, so you may be paying a higher interest rate if you choose to consolidate. But again, for, for some and, and a decent amount of people, it can be a good decision to look into. So that, again, is consolidation where you're staying within the federal programs. Refinancing, you're going to a private company. And private companies, again, the federal government isn't necessarily built to service and manage these student loans efficiently and in the most productive way possible. A private company is built and designed to do that. So you can find, um, you can potentially find lower interest rates by refinancing privately. There is one caveat that I do want to mention, and I know Ryan, you and I have talked about it before, is, is that if you do refinance you cannot go back to a federal program. So right, right now we're in, again, we're in the midst of this pandemic and, and everything, all the rules are just being changed from what we're used to. We took out loans all throughout dental school that were unsubsidized and, and never had any of that interest paid. But right now until September 30th, we're on forbearance. And forbearance normally means, again, that the interest is accruing over that time. But in this case, until September 30th, all of the interest is being paid if you're on a federal program. So if someone, again, was very, very worried about their debt coming out of dental school and, and maybe made the right decision 
um, for them at the time, but chose to refinance privately, they would not necessarily be getting that same subsidy. Um, some of the companies and a lot of the companies, I think, have offered some ways to, to help people who have refinanced as far as interest-only payments um, and things of that nature. But, but there is just something to be said about understanding that if you choose to go through the private refinancing route, understand that you cannot go back to, to the federal loan servicers, even if there is a beneficial period like right now. That's one of the, one of the benefits of, of keeping it there. But like you said, it, it really, there's a lot of variation. It depends a lot on someone's individual situation. Yeah, it really does. And in, I think a good um, way to think about this is looking at your entire debt and, and your situation. You want to be in a very stable situation before, before you're looking to refinance, in my mind. You also want to make sure that your debt burden is, is at a reasonable rate relative to your income. If you have $600,000 worth of loans and you make $150,000, it's a good income, but that ratio is very, very high. And that's going to be hard to service the debt. But if you make $150,000 and your student loan debt burden is the same, $150,000, the same, so it would be a ratio of one, then in that case, it, it can make sense to refinance and that can be, can be a good option. Student loans are interesting in that normally you're going to run into one of two routes. Either you're going to want to be paying your student loans off at almost the slowest rate possible or you're gonna, again, wanna be throwing everything that you can at them and getting rid of them as quickly as possible. And then after you're done with them, you'll have that free cash flow freed up. You had alluded to this, um, and I just wanted to make sure that uh, we specifically talked through the main differences, but uh, so what is the, the main difference between deferment and forbearance? So, Deferment and forbearance, they're really, really similar. And, and again, going into the weeds, I don't want to go down the weeds too far with them. Um, basically, both of them are able to postpone your student loan payments when you're having difficulty affording those payments. The major difference is that forbearance, it, it almost always increases the amount that you owe. And if you're able to get both, um, deferment is likely going to be a better option for most people. And, and for some types of federal loans, it can be interest-free. The difficulty is, though, that your eligibility for deferment is very, very specific. And I would just urge people to look online um, for what those eligibility criteria are to get deferment. But they're very, very similar, understanding that. And, and a lot of times, neither one of them are are going to be the ideal option. It's, it's going to be more that someone's running through a very, very rough patch um, if they, they recently um, became unemployed or something of that nature, or if they're going through school, um, deferring that loan that many of us did in school, that can be beneficial. And are those only options with the government loans, or can you do that with a private loan? That I, I don't know for sure and it's probably private loan private company specific and as far as what they're able to do as far as letting you defer payments or forbear for a temporary amount of time in each company there are so many companies out there that that would be a 
a question for your servicer if you if you do have privately refinanced loans. Now, Hubble, you had alluded to this before in terms of specific strategies for paying back your loans. There are these income-based repayment plans. Could you talk a little bit about what those are all about? So backing up, I mentioned a debt to income ratio in a lot of the strategies are are based on that. And if you have a ratio that's that's higher than one and a half or two times, so if your your debt is twice as much as your income, a lot of times you're gonna be better off kind of making those small payments over a longer period of time through an income-driven repayment plan. If your income is relatively high, say less than 1.5, 1.5 times your debt burden, then refinancing can be a good option. And again, this is just one more area where student loans are very, very unique. I, and there may be some other loans out there, but not that I am really that familiar with that allow you to pay based on your income. When someone goes to get a 15 or 30 year mortgage, the bank doesn't say, I'm going to expect you to pay more whenever you make more. Whenever you're making less, I'm going to expect you to pay less. It's based on an amount of time. So if you get a 30 year mortgage over those 30 years, you're making payments that are equal in amount, um, but that will eventually pay off the loan after 30 years. So that is one aspect that's very, very unique to student loans. And again, it, it gives rise to some of these, some of these strategies that, that some of our colleagues are utilizing. So um, again, going back to different types of income-driven repayment plans, there are currently four out there, I believe. There are, there's income-based repayment, income-contingent repayment, and then pay as you earn, also known as pay, and revised pay as you earn, also known as repay. The IBR or income-based repayment and ICR income contingent repayment, those had higher amounts that you were responsible to pay for based on a percentage of your income. For IBR, it's 15%, and for ICR, it's 20%. So pay and repay came along a little bit after these programs. And for both pay and repay, you pay 10% of your discretionary income. The difference comes for how long you have to make those payments. For pay, you make those payments for 20 years. And then after the 20 years of payments, your debt is forgiven. And, and I say that in, in air quotes, but no one can really see me giving the air quotes because <laughs> after that 20 years, whenever the debt's forgiven, you're actually taxed on that as if it was your income. So say you still have a remaining loan balance of $100,000. Um, it's forgiven, but the IRS is gonna issue a 1099-C form after that 20 years and expect you to pay taxes on that $100,000. So, so say someone's in a 40% tax bracket 20 years from now. Who knows what the tax brackets will be, but again, arbitrary number, they would be expected to pay $40,000 at that time. Okay. Um, repay, it, it's again similar in that it's 10%, but instead of 20 years, you're going to be making those payments for 25 years. Um, there are also some, some subtle differences as far as um, how you can file taxes and make those repayments. And 
the biggest difference in my mind, besides the amount of time that you need to make payments, is the interest subsidy that comes along with repay. So any unpaid interest, half of that will be paid by the government. So I just want to step back and try to make an example with, with some numbers. And it's kind of hard to think about numbers over an audio format. I think it's also really, really beneficial to, to do at the same time. So again, $300,000 for student loan debt, say that it's being, has an interest rate of 6%. So over a year, it would accrue $18,000 of interest. Let's say someone just graduated and based on that calculation from repay, they're expected to pay $10,000 over that year. Okay, so they had $18,000 of interest but they're expected to pay $10,000. So that loan is still increasing from that interest. And it's not capitalizing on that interest, but you're not quite paying that interest off. There's still $8,000 left. So since that's the case, if you are under repay, the government will subsidize half of that. So the government will effectively pay $4,000 of that, and you will be responsible for the remaining $4,000. So that still does get added to the balance. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes perfect sense. I, I want to make our listeners aware that if you do decide to um, pursue a dual degree program, so I, I did a DMD PhD, a dual, you know, a joint program. And because of that, it, it was an NIH funded program. So I actually got a stipend and had all of my tuition covered both by a combination of um, NIH money and, and Harvard's they dedicated scholarship funds for the support of dual degree candidates. And those opportunities exist at most major research um, dental schools. So Harvard, uh, UNC is starting a program, UCSF, Michigan. Um, and so if, you know, if, if you're someone who is very debt averse, like I am extremely debt averse to the point that it did contribute to my decision to do a PhD, even though I'm very thankful I did it because I'm very happy doing research as well. Um, that is an opportunity there. And another option for avoiding um, kind of the debt burdens is doing it via a ROTC route, where you would go to dental school and then um, have some years of military service as a dentist. And we have multiple residents in the UNC program that have done that. Um, and we're quite happy with that experience as well. So, so if you if you are a dental student or someone thinking about dental school and you're somewhat recoiling at these numbers, um, th there are ways of doing it. It does lengthen the road um, and it is challenging in its own right, but there, there is a way to do it without taking on the debt. Yes, there, there are definitely ways to do it without taking on the debt. And I, I think that people should make sure that they want to go those ways too before yes, they make absolutely. that decision. Do and not do a PhD unless you want to do research in some capacity. Like I, I, I knew that I loved research. I was very seriously considering graduate school um, independently of dental school. And this was a way of merging those two interests. I would not sign up to do a PhD if, if you have no baseline interest in research. Um, whereas I know the people who did the ROTC route, I think it was more more financially motivated or they came from a military background and so they had a sense of what they were signing up for and it, and it did work well for them but, but yeah don't, don't just do it as a cost-saving measure yeah and there are there are public health programs that are similar to the HPSP as far as similar to the military uh, program that offer abilities to to graduate from school with no debt or or minimal debt um, so those are things to look into as well I, I realize kind of as you said that, Laura, that I've been, it's 
been kind of a Debbie Downer conversation. And I do want to back <laughs> up and just make, make a point um, that as dentistry stands, again, let's say pre-COVID, because <laughs> we don't know how, um, how things will change um, and things will change. But as they stood before COVID, it was still a good financial decision, even with all these things. So let's say worst case scenario, someone graduated from, from a school and just had an inordinate amount of student loan debt, $700,000 plus, let's say. At that point, the amount, I, I don't want to say it doesn't matter because someone will be paying the bill eventually, and, and that will be the taxpayer down the road. But that overall balance um, at that point is not the biggest part of the equation. So at that point, the way I would urge people to think about it is more like a tax or an extra tax that one would have on their income. So the average student graduating with a bachelor's degree and someone going to dental school, one could argue, isn't necessarily an average student. Normally, someone going to dental school has worked quite hard to get there. Um, but let's just use an average for, for this um, diversion and this little tangent. Uh, the average student graduating with a bachelor degree may make $50,000. An associate coming right out of dental school, they may look to be making $120,000. And there is an opportunity cost as far as that four years. But if someone was planning for that tax bomb with one of those two income-driven repayment plans, it would be 10%. But let's say you take another 10% of your salary to save for that and invest for that which will compound over those 20 to 25 years. So effectively your salary is 20% less than it would be. So if someone's making 120,000, then they can think about their salary as $96,000. And that's still a very, very nice salary relative to an average person graduating with a bachelor's degree in, in America. And if you extend that globally, I mean, it's a very, very nice lifestyle that one is able to live. And again, why, why I've tried to make a point, and it's really difficult to make without delving into one situation, but as looking at this from a more global perspective and, and not getting overwhelmed with it, because, because I really was my, my first and second year of dental school. It, it, it was difficult seeing this amount grow and grow, um, but taking a bigger picture of it and a more balanced approach, um, I think can be really beneficial in a lot of things in life but especially this. So thinking of that, uh, of that debt as almost like a tax um, can be a decent way for someone to think about it. And how much do you think the numbers associated with a particular school should influence their choice? Because I know in, in White Coat Investor, he advocates for going with you know, in-state, less expensive schools because you're going to be a dentist and likely successful no matter what. So you might as well take on a lower debt load with whichever program would be in state for you. Do you agree with that approach or do you view it differently? All things being equal, I, I do agree with that approach. However, all things aren't equal. Um, family um, and, and other things come into, come into play there and they need to be considered. But someone needs to go into that decision with their eyes wide open understanding that student loan money that they get during school, it's not monopoly money, and, and eventually it will affect how you make decisions in your life. But with that being said, there, there are some things 
in our life and a lot of things that, that we place quite a bit of value on and we should, and they can lead to quite a bit of happiness. All things being equal, choose a, choose a cheaper school. And that should also be, in my mind, you don't necessarily have to always choose a cheaper school, but if there's a significant difference, then you would have to find really, really strong reasons to not choose that school. I agree with that statement as well. I think a lot of dental school is what you choose to make of it. And a lot, if not every dental school out there has a ton of available resources. There's a lot online that you can take advantage of and pursue with your own time. And I think a good majority of what you learn is based on your own motivation and your own discipline, not necessarily how many dollars you put towards an institution. You were throwing out numbers of average fresh out of school earnings. They, they are, you know, comfortable numbers to live on, but just so listeners have a sense, once you're owning a practice and, you know, let's say 10 years out, what would an average general dentist expect to be earning? Oh man, Laura, you are <laughs> killing me with some loaded questions here. And that's really, really difficult. Um, I mean, it's hard know. to even answer an ortho. Like I, I you know, yeah. I know how much people earn ballpark in North Carolina, but I know it's, it's less in large cities that have a lot more saturation. And so there's a big, big range. Yeah. So but, you mentioned, you mentioned Jim Dollier. He's the emergency physician that blogs at the White Coat Investor. Mm-hmm. And he is a great source of all kinds of information. And the thing that he likes to say is in medicine, there's, there's a lot of interspecialty variation as far as income. So a plastic yes. surgeon versus a family medicine doc, mm-hmm. they're very different as far as the incomes Huge. that they make. But bigger than that, there's a lot of intra-specialty mm-hmm. variation. And you can have a family medicine doc that's very entrepreneurial and has his or her own practice and does very, very well, whereas another family medicine doc may, may just work a few days a week um, and, and uh, may not do as well. So that's that really applies to dentistry, maybe even more so, because again, it is a, still at this point a very entrepreneurial field with with private practices. And and again, who knows how that changes over the long term? We are seeing a lot of a lot of squeezing factors, as he likes to call them. For uh, he likes to refer to them as a big squeeze in medicine. But in dentistry, we're experiencing the same factors as far as, again, higher student loan burdens. We're experiencing lower reimbursement from, from insurance companies, increased regulations and associated costs. And that was, that was even before COVID. And that's just going to be exacerbated. And then in dentistry itself, a lot, of, a lot of the cottage industry, the mom and pop solo doc offices, There will, I believe, still be a place for them, but we've seen a lot more of an influx as far as private equity capital. I'm interested to see how COVID, if it affects that at all, as far as the leverage from those companies, but that's something to be aware of. But with all those things being said, as far as knowing how much someone will make out of their practice um, 10 years after graduation, uh, it, it's very, very difficult to say. I, I think a reasonable, a reasonable range is the dentistry part 
a general dentist could probably expect somewhere between $150,000 and $200,000. But whenever you're a practice owner, you do the dentistry, but you're also paid profits based on how you manage the business and, and based on how you own and, and for that entrepreneurial risk. And in my mind, it's kind of important to separate that to run a decent, a decent business and, and run it in, in an effective way. So, so practice owners, I mean, they can make, uh, the, the sky's the limit, especially with multiple practices. If one chooses to go down that route, again, it's, it's not unheard of for GPs to be doing four or $500,000 plus as far as their total take home pay, if they own their own practice. But again, that variability is just so, so wide that it's hard to say. And the ADA offers some good information on that. The thing that I will note with the ADA and their information is, again, it only includes employment income. And in the typical way that a business is set up is likely the majority of businesses are set up as S corporations. So as a dentist, if you're an owner, you're paid as an employee and you're paid wages and a salary. And that's what gets reported to the ADA. You're also paid a distribution. Um, and that is not a part of their survey, at least from the way that I understand their definitions. Thank you. No, that's, that's very clarifying. And I mean, it's the same in orthodontics. You know, you come out as an associate um, and if you're working full time, it's around 180 to 200. If you're going to a corporate dental orthodontic office, you're making somewhat substantially more than that, but that's kind of where you're going to plateau at. Um, whereas if you end up buying into an office, um, especially in any sort of growing area, people are earning in the three to 500 grand a year range. And then, you know, I know many practices in North Carolina where it's slightly more rural, where they're clearing between 500 and a million a year. I mean, they're working very hard. They're seeing patients four or five days a week um, and, and have, you know, a large staff and they're running five or six chairs. And again, all of this may change after COVID to, a, to some degree, but there is a big, a big dynamic range. Whereas people who have more boutique practices, um, who want to see fewer patients and spend more time per patient, they don't usually charge proportionally more for them. And so then they're, you know, they may stay in that two to 300 a year range. Uh, the one thing I want to add, too, is that there's definitely an opportunity cost in doing combined degree programs or military uh, training. So even though you're paid a stipend, you're not paid anywhere near a salary of a practicing dentist or a practicing specialist. So I did effectively lose out on four you know, traditional working years, which made sense for me because I knew I wanted to stay active in, in academics and research um, and make sense for people who are committed to supporting the military um, and, and want to go that route. But there definitely is a cost to that. That's um, not just loan avoidance. The opportunity cost is a huge component of all these, of all these decisions, and, and it's a fundamental concept in economics, and, and I urge everyone to really think in that way as they make decisions and understand that there are trade-offs uh, to choosing to go go down one route and it can involve your time but but time does have a value to it mm -hmm. and thanks Hubble. this has been extremely helpful i think not only for uh, dental students and recent dental graduates but even people who may be thinking about going into dentistry and just to have some of these ideas 
already in their heads in terms of opportunity cost or some of the numbers we're talking about, I think will be extremely helpful in them making an informed decision. I guess, are there any uh, final thoughts that you have for our listeners or, and or any other resources that you recommend for those people out there who may be struggling or overwhelmed with their debt? I appreciate anyone who's kind of spent their time with me and listening to me and everything that I had to say, and hopefully there was something of value that they were able to take away. But as far as research resources that I would recommend, there, there are quite a few of them out there that are great. And we've, we've mentioned a few of them throughout, throughout this podcast. One again is Travis Hornsby over at the student loan planner. As far as trying to get a good gauge on these different repayment plans and what is better, which one's better for you. He has a calculator that, that is free signing up with this email that, that is fantastic. He also does consults that, that are very reasonably priced. I have never used his services. I don't get paid by him. I've just been very, very impressed with the work that he's put out. The other one that Laura mentioned is Jim Dolly over at the White Coat Investor. I think that his information is is great as well. If you if you follow his advice and 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 understand and take the time to read a lot of his blog posts and other bloggers affiliated with his White Coat Investor Network, like Leaf Dahlin over at uh, the Physician on Fire, or Jimmy Turner at the Physician Philosopher. I think you'll be able to get a good grasp on on your finances, um, but especially Jimmy's blog, I've enjoyed quite a bit because again, it has that philosophical side that I think is so important to um, to the money and to finances there. And then lastly, if you're looking for just one resource, um, if you really want to get into the nitty gritty with all of this, Ben White is is the kind of original student loan guy in my mind. He's another MD, but he has he has a book on Amazon. His book is Medical Student Loans, a Comprehensive Guide, and it has a lot of quality information. Again, it's written from a perspective for our medical colleagues, but there's a lot of similarities between medicine and dentistry and, and being high income but high debt professionals. So those would be the three kind of resources that I would recommend checking out. Awesome. Well, thank you again, Hubble. This is a great discussion. I learned a lot, as I always do from you, and uh, I appreciate you taking the time to be with us. Thanks, Ryan and Laura. I appreciate my time with you guys, too. I really enjoyed Hubble's perspective and honestly learned a huge amount about the topic. Um, I, I really wish we were living in a system where, you know, if if the money was going to be lent, there'd be a much lower interest rate and you know, it wasn't such an onerous stressor on top of everything else people are going through in dental school with all of the testing and maybe applying to residency programs and, you know, licensure exams. There's just so much going on in dental school to then right. constantly have, have, have this like number accruing in the back of your mind that you know is going to be waiting for you when you finish. And that's just a huge amount of pressure to, to deal with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I absolutely agree. It's, it's amazing to me that the, the average student debt is upwards of $300,000. And it's, it's definitely an intimidating number. But, you know, we're lucky that dentistry in general is a well paying profession, and you can do really well with it. But just starting off with that kind of, like you say, number looming over your head definitely can be overwhelming. So again, just really important to take care of yourself and 
gather as much information as you can, make informed decisions, and do what's best for you in terms of planning out your repayment strategy and how you want to approach that. And it, it was clear, too, that there's a lot of nuance to this and pros and cons associated with you know, go- government lending mechanisms and private refinancing methods and yeah. just know that you need to do a lot of homework and, and really understand what you're signing up for depending on which, which way you go. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a really good point. So we'll leave links in the description of uh, the video if you want to check out some of those books that we mentioned, like uh, White Coat Investor, uh, Medical Student Loans by Ben White, and uh, the Student Loan Planner website. I think they're all really, really great resources. Yeah, I learned a lot from, from a couple of those myself. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I'm so glad that Hubble was able to come on. He's a a great friend of mine. He graduated from dental school with me. And so it was just fun to catch up with him and hear from him again. And I remember teaching him how to bond brackets in some orthodontic session. I, I never, <laughs> really? I never had the chance to get to know him. I mean, I'm glad I did. Oh, that's cool. That's cool. So if you have any uh, follow-up questions after this episode, again, feel free to leave those in a comment below this video. Uh, send us an email at officialmentaldental at gmail.com. Or you can reach out to me via social media platforms on Facebook and Instagram, and we will address those comments and questions in the next video. But that's it for this one, guys. Take care, be safe, and we'll see you all in the next episode.